Excited Utterance, The Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 62, Christopher Robertson, Incentives, Lies, and Disclosure. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Chris Robertson. Chris is Associate Dean for Research and Innovation and Professor of Law at the University of Arizona. Chris's research is in the area of health law and the intersection of law and science. And among other things, Chris teaches health law and torts. Our podcast today features Chris's new article, Incentives, Lies, and Disclosure, which was co-authored with Alex Winkleman and published last year in the Journal of Constitutional Law. In it, Chris tackles the curious practice in which prosecutors are allowed to offer inducements to witnesses for testimony, which spans the gamut from reduced sentences, immunity, or even cash payments. As Chris notes, ordinarily, such behavior would constitute witness bribery, but because of long-standing practice allowing a sovereign to do so, prosecutors enjoy this particular privilege. What effect do such inducements have on accuracy? Do the incentives increase the risk of false testimony? And can jurors properly discount witnesses who are so induced? Using three sets of randomized experiments, Chris tries to find out. Chris, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you. You begin your article with a really interesting observation. Ordinarily, offering inducements to a witness is a felony. It's witness tampering. But we don't seem to bat an eye when the government does it. And indeed, the government routinely does this kind of thing. Why? Well, you know, that alone is a bit of a mystery that this particular paper tries to do several different things. And one is just to really point out the mystery and the anomaly of it. And so... I'm not sure I have a complete answer to why, but I will say what the courts have struggled around over the years when squarely presented with the issue, they try to avoid it whenever they can. But when squarely presented, they say something about, well, you know, surely Congress or the state legislatures couldn't have intended the bribery of a witness statute to apply to the government. So we'll kind of presume there's some presumption in statutory interpretation that it doesn't apply to the government unless the law specifically says so. But when you press on that a little further, you see there's all sorts of laws that say whomever does such and such, and and it clearly applies to the government. The destruction of evidence, for example, or the selling of state secrets, all those apply to government officials if they do it. So that answer, that textualist answer, can't go very far. So where the courts tend to end up is saying, well, there's this ancient sovereign prerogative. There's basically a tradition of the government being allowed to undertake this behavior. So as far as it goes, that seems to be the answer as to why we tolerate it is because we always have. I was particularly surprised to learn about the actual cash payouts. Charge bargaining and stuff is perhaps controversial, but I think pretty well known. But the cash was definitely a surprise to me. I'm a little bit ambivalent about that. On the one hand, it is striking when it happens. It's sort of 
amazing to see an actual, you know, the government writing a check to a witness. But there's a range of incidences that are, I think, economically equivalent, such as not pursuing asset forfeiture or not pursuing statutory fines to their maximum available. So, you know, letting the, someone keep their money is economically equivalent to, to giving them money. But there are a few cases where they've actually given money to uh, terrorism witnesses and others. And But let me just say that if we're worried about an incentive creating false testimony, then in some ways, bargaining away of year of imprisonment or years of imprisonment is actually more profound. Even if it's familiar, the potential incentive effects are bigger than, you know, $100,000 cash or even a million dollars cash when we get into these larger sentences. So I really think we should view them all as equally worrisome or equally powerful. As I was thinking about this, I kind of concluded that perhaps it was a necessary evil that Without this power to provide some kind of inducement, prosecutors really can't turn co-conspirators into cooperating witnesses. And without these cooperating witnesses, then we can't prosecute the most insidious criminal organizations that we know. So perhaps, I think, you know, although unseemly, maybe this is all borne out by social welfare. But then I want to put the question to you, what are the chief concerns here from a welfare perspective? Assuming that prosecutors are going to be acting in good faith and they're not purposely suborning perjury, what are the concerns that this practice should raise? Well, I think we should distinguish a few different cases where this practice arises. One is where you give a, a witness an incentive to flip and begin helping the government, and then the witness's role is actually to produce other evidence. For example, if the witness then wears a wire and just passively records criminal discussion, the fact that that witness was given an incentive is not worrisome epistemologically. Or similarly, if the witness tells the government where the dead body's buried, they go undig it, and sure enough, there's the dead body, and the, the body itself serves as the evidence. So in those settings, I'm not nearly as worried about incentives as where we're actually paying a witness to come to court, and it's what we otherwise call an ipsedixit, to actually say something that we believe because the witness said it. That Latin phrase is otherwise used, you, you know, in the doctrine around expert witnesses. You know, we don't trust an expert who just says so. But in this domain, we do trust a witness who do, just says so. And in the paper, we give some prominent examples of that, like there was the Alabama prosecution of Don Siegelman, the governor, where it all really came down to an incentivized witness saying, yes, there was a quid pro quo at the core of the bribe. You know, and there's lots of other cases where it's, yes, he pulled the trigger. If I could just emphasize that I hope and think that sort of testimony is also becoming less necessary. As more and more of our lives are on video, as more and more of our lives, our locations are on our cell phones, as more and more of our correspondence is through text messages and emails and phone number registries, that I actually think we don't need this sort of ipsedixit nearly as much. And so if we do crack down on the government's behavior here, we might not lose a lot in terms of your welfare analysis to bring the answer home. We might just cause the government to rely more on evidence that has greater epistemological warrant, evidence that deserves more credibility rather than evidence that's been produced through this quid pro quo. So that's interesting. So that that's actually a great distinction that you're making here, that the key problem here is where the witness being offered the inducement is actually participating as a witness and therefore would have an incentive to lie. And even if the witness is not lying per se, 
now has bias and all kinds of other things where we're going to shade the truth in favor of the government because in some cases, the inducement is conditional. So you actually have to satisfy the government as to what you say. I think it's almost always more or less conditional in that the government will ask for essentially a proffer by your attorney. If we can get a deal, here's what my client would probably be willing to say. Paul Manafort pled guilty, and they they held open his sentencing until after he's done cooperating. And the reason they held open his sentencing is so that they can keep the deal essentially contingent. If he ends up not cooperating very much, he gets a harsh sentence recommendation from the prosecutors and vice versa. So that conditionality sort of on the margin creates every incentive to tell the government what they want to hear. What I really like about this article is that it attacks this problem from two angles. First, you identify this problem, which is an interesting quirk of the system, and then you analyze it conceptually, but then you actually empirically probe it. So first question is, what led you to think about this empirically? What made you want to think about what these inducements really do? my training as a philosopher, I started out before going to law school, really wants me to think about every question in a counterfactual sense of causality. So always asking the question of how would that witness have testified if not for the inducement? And when you clarify that that's the question, that's what the juror needs to know. Because if the witness would testify differently, if not given the inducement, then you can see the inducement has actually caused the testimony we are hearing. It's not that the underlying facts caused the testimony. That's what we're trying to discover. Instead, the inducement caused the testimony. And so really sorting out that counterfactual question of what he would have done without the inducement, I think is essential. And we could put this in Bayesian terms and do the simple calculus if we wanted, but that's the basic idea. And then if you, if you step one step further, you think, well, there's actually, we don't know the counterfactual. At most, we can know a distribution of probabilities of what he might have done if he had been not given the inducement. But still, it's hard to know in any particular case what that range would even be. It depends both on the size of the inducement, but also the potential risks of lying and the witness's internal disincentives that he might feel, his morality to lying. And so the best I think we could start to do is actually construct an experiment, at least at a population level, can, in a lab setting, create one group without the inducement and another group with the inducement and hold everything else constant. And you can start to see how much difference the inducement makes. Really just going through those thought experiments drives me towards an empirical approach. Tell me more about this experiment. This first question is, do the inducements actually in fact lead the witnesses to lie? Give us an overview of how you tested it and the interesting results that you came up with. Sure. So the first thing to clarify, and you've already alluded to this welfare analysis, is we want inducements to procure true testimony in cases where the story really is favorable to the government. And so in our experiments, we created versions of the world where the testimony the government sought really is true. The bad guy did it and the witness saw him do it. And so in those conditions, we manipulate whether there's an incentive or not and the size of the incentive. And sure enough, we see that the incentive can cause people who are otherwise for some base reason reluctant to testify an incentive like lenience on underlying charges, maybe we'll pay your rent for a few months. We, we see those actually procuring uh, true testimony in those scenarios. 
And what we've done here is we actually created, it's called a vignette, a story where we recruit a human subject. Uh, we're doing it mostly on the internet. And we put them in a scenario, say, read this text, write about how you would feel in this situation, and then what would you do when the government you know, asks you whether you would testify? And the respondent doesn't know that we've manipulated variables like the truth or the falsity or the size of the incentive or the amount of the incentive. So it's fully blinded in that way. In other versions of the experiment, we have falsity. We have a, a scenario where the human subject reads the story that tells him quite clearly that he actually didn't hear or see the underlying crime, but the government's willing to give him an incentive if he'll testify favorably to the government. And here we see dramatic increases in willingness to testify. We find about, even in a murder case where the death penalty is on the line, we find about 20% of the people willing to testify falsely when given what's a relatively minor incentive. And we worry that this was a jailhouse snitch scenario, that if you actually allow the police to do this to multiple witnesses, to multiple potential witnesses, it's almost 100% sure that they can get one if they just try over and over offering these incentives. And one thing we emphasize is that the government typically doesn't know the truth, right? They're trying to figure it out themselves. So I think we mention over and over in the papers that none of this implies any bad faith on the part of the prosecutors. So anyway, we replicate this with a few different scenarios and almost a thousand respondents, and we get this pretty consistent story that incentives uh, procure false testimony pretty reliably, that it's the government's field to hunt. The tricky thing here is that from a welfare perspective or even an accuracy perspective, the difficulty is that we don't really have a good sense of base rates, right? You are procuring more true positives you are also procuring more false positives, but we don't really know what the distribution is because I guess it really depends on the case and when the prosecutors want to use this tool and whatnot. That's right. I mean, if we could rely on prosecutors to only offer the incentive when it's true, then this problem would go away. But for both institutional reasons and epistemological reasons, we can't really rely on prosecutors that way. They're searching for the truth as well, and we really have to judge the witnesses on their own two feet. We can't defer to the prosecutors. We can't allow the prosecutors to vouch for witnesses. So really, from an epistemological perspective, this paper is written from the jury's point of view, that even aside from the larger practices, how should a jury interpret this sort of purchase testimony. And we suggest they probably need to discount it a lot more than they do as of now. In some of our experimental uh, conditions, we had both, and this was sort of a novel contribution of the paper, we had both, in one scenario, we had respondents assigned to the witness conditions and to the jurors' conditions. And we found that although the incentive dramatically increased the rate of false testimony, disclosing the incentive made no difference on the jury's reliance on that testimony. And so that, even aside from the larger welfare analysis, that's a recipe for failure because we see that discongruity between witness behavior and jury behavior. I want you to tell me a little bit more about that, what is actually the third experiment that you run about juror behavior. So the jury or the mock jurors do not actually take into account the incentive structure anywhere near the way that they really should. Yeah. In that experiment, we had randomly assigned jurors to decide a case. In fact, it was a version of the Don Siegelman case I already described. 
And we had three experimental conditions. One is where there was no witness at all. They just had to decide the bribery case on the background facts. And there we got a pretty small conviction rate, uh, 20% say. But then we had two other conditions where a witness was present and one where the witness had no incentive to lie and the other where it was disclosed, like the Brady rule requires disclosure, that the witness had this sizable incentive to give testimony that favoring the government regardless of whether it's true. And so here you would hope, because our other research has shown that that incentive really causes a lot of false testimony or really increases a risk of false testimony, that you'd hope that the disclosure would cause the jurors to discount the reliance on the witness, maybe counted as a half witness, right? Between having no witness at all and having an, an unconflicted witness. But instead, we don't even find a significant difference in their conviction rates when you have that Brady disclosure. So the title of the paper could be Why Brady Fails, because so much of the doctrine around Brady and cross-examination of witnesses really depends on jurors to discount accordingly. And they and they don't seem to be doing so. You finish up the article talking about some possible policy changes given the results of the experiments. Tell us a little bit more about them. You have one which talks about screening, some kind of reliability check, very similar to the Daubert regime, or you might even say the Ohio v. Roberts regime, if you want to talk about it that way. And you also suggest some kind of blinding as a different way of pursuing this problem. That's right. The first issue, I think, and they go together a little bit, but the the first approach is not completely novel, but it's something that the courts have not given serious consideration to, is for them to actually provide a, a screening to make sure the testimony is more probative than prejudicial, that it sheds light on the truth rather than merely shedding light on the fact that the witness was incentivized. And so I think you actually already have the code words I just said, you already have the bases in the federal rules or the analogous state rules to provide this sort of screening to make sure the testimony is helpful to the jury. And I suggest the way to do that is for the judge to ask that counterfactual question. Would a rational witness in this person's position give this testimony regardless of whether it's true. If he would give the testimony regardless of whether it's true, then it really has no epistemic value. It's just been purchased like an actor on a stage. And I think there will be situations that are clearer on one end than the other. If it's, for example, completely corroborated by physical evidence and you just need the witness to sort of tell the story and stitch it together, then you can have this coherence that reassures the court. But if, on the other hand, you no, know, an attorney is bringing a witness just for the ipsa dixit, the bottom line, and any rational witness would say so regardless of whether it's true, I think the judges should start excluding those. If the judges did that, I think it would also put more pressure on the government to avoid these sorts of biases, to avoid that risk of exclusion. And that drives me to the second point, and it's a little more creative, and it's the idea that you could use a blinding mechanism where the government would actually have to offer these deals without knowing whether the testimony would be favorable to the government. They can only know that it may be material to the case. And so this invokes the idea of prosecutors as officers of the court, prosecutors and ministers of justice, and also the prosecutors as responding to that pressure that they have to put on evidence that is unbiased. And so the suggestion is you could bifurcate the prosecutorial function, just like we currently have a review committee in the Department of Justice that reviews all death penalty prosecutions, does so blindedly so that the DOJ central prosecutors don't know whether the candidates are black or white. You could similarly have line prosecutors propose to the central DOJ whether an incentive should be given, but central DOJ would not know whether it's going to be favorable or not. And to make that work, you have to allow the defense attorney and the 
potential witness to use cheap talk below. They have to be happy with faking that they would give favorable testimony or else the lower line prosecutor won't even send the proposal up. And so that requires a little tweak to where we think about, you know, it requires a careful dance as to who says what to make sure no one gets in charge uh, in trouble with making false statements to a federal official or similar. But I think it's potentially workable to have this blinding mechanism that avoids the incentive to give favorable testimony regardless of whether it's true. Now, I suppose if you forced unconditional incentives, one of the problems with unconditional incentives is that then the witness might not actually be cooperating and they'll get a uh, free get-out-of-jail-free card. Could you possibly have the judge somehow police whether or not the witness has in good faith complied with the terms of the agreement? That's right. I think the terms of the agreement can require that the witness have material information that's actually helpful to the jury, but can't require that, oh, it can only be inculpatory or it can't be biased with a thumb on the scale to one side. If it turns out that the witness is not providing material information that's helpful to the fact finder, then the deal should be pulled and we're back to square one. Final question for you. What's next? Are you planning additional research in this area? This is if I may be so bold, this is usually a little bit outside the usual health law stuff that I know you work on, but it does have some interesting crossover implications. That's right. I mean, I've kind of been working on a couple tracks. Health law is one big body of work with health insurance and bioethics and things, but I'm, I keep coming back to really what I call legal epistemology. When we think about how institutions work to produce knowledge or produce information, I'm really interested. And I've got to say, you know, these were three experiments. We have a thousand respondents. We have some novel designs, but they really all need to be replicated and extended. I don't expect these three experiments to cause a seizure change in criminal justice. But I do want to encourage a body of this work. I think we have clarified the question in an important way, and that I hope I can work with other scholars, maybe in the future do a book or a symposium or a conference, really pushing on this issue of the accuracy of our court determinations when we pay witnesses to say one thing rather than the other. Well, Chris, thanks for taking the time to talk about witness inducements and the results of your recent experiments. Great having you on the show. Thank you, Ed. At the beginning of our interview, Chris drew an important distinction. The problem of inducements that we've been discussing is particularly problematic when we're talking testimony, specifically accusatory and largely uncorroborated testimony. When the inducements produce physical evidence or corroborated evidence, then they're not as worrisome. But when we're talking about induced testimony, the problem is, in fact, potentially serious. Intuitively, we can see that giving witnesses incentives to lie will likely lead to them doing exactly that. And Chris's experiments bear this out. While inducements produce additional true testimony, they also produce additional false testimony. What's more, mock jurors don't seem to give weight to the presence of an inducement. The witness's damning accusation seems just too powerful or too salient to be tempered by abstract knowledge that the witness had some kind of incentive to lie. And maybe culture has something to do with this too. We all know that the government turns witnesses using deals. Nothing seems all that nefarious, until someone insightful like Chris points out that, hey, 
that's functionally analogous to witness tampering. One issue that continues to bother me about the study is the issue of base rates. If induced testimony results in true testimony half the time, and false testimony the other half the time, then jurors should give testimony half weight. And if they don't, then that's a problem. But if most induced testimony is true, say 90% of it, and only 10% of it is false, then the results Chris found are far less concerning. Under those base rates, it's not inappropriate for jurors to treat induced testimony as largely true. Don't get me wrong. Getting at such base rates is a hard empirical question. After the interview, Chris and I mused about some ways that one could perhaps try to get a handle on them. All of that, though, will have to wait for future work. For the moment, Chris has given us plenty of reasons to worry. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Park Carranza and Megan Cole, and the music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.